So Revelation chapter 5, and we want to uh, examine this tonight under the title, Who is Worthy? And the goal will be to walk through all of chapter 5 this evening, and then in two weeks' time we'll walk through chapter 6 and break open six of the seals on the scroll of God. And then in three weeks' time we'll, on our last gathering of the year, walk through the seventh chapter and look at the numbering of the people of God, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, and myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands that no one could number, and be reminded that God, God is building a kingdom of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues for his own glory. But we want to ask the question, who is worthy? And as we do, we want to hear John's experience of the presence of the one who sits upon the throne. And that the longer that John dwells in the presence of the one who sits upon the throne, the more that he understands about him, the more that he realizes and takes in and sees and hears. And it's this glorious scene in heaven's portals that stands between us and the end of time as a word of hope. Here John pauses, led by the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell us about the presence of God so that we would find comfort, even as we know the certainty of God's wrath that will be poured out on those who are positioned against him. Let's read together, beginning in chapter 5 and verse 1. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll or to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Who is worthy? We begin by thinking in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, about the ability of Judah's lion and David's root. The ability of Judah's lion and David's root. In chapter 4, John recorded his experience of heaven's throne room where he was bid into the presence of the Lord God Almighty who reigns over all creation and orders all creation toward his divine purposes, preeminently his own glorious praise. John's description is that of an ongoing scene. The worship of the Father by the four living creatures and the 24 elders never ends. As that scene of continual praise takes hold of John, he gains his bearings and realizes there's even more activity in the throne room. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord God Almighty, John notices something in his right hand. Surely we must recognize that the Father is not an embodied being. The Father is a spirit. So there's no actual right hand. This is figurative language. But the vision is highly symbolic as John comes to understand not only who reigns over creation and redemption, but also who is worthy to unveil redemption's plan and to put it into effect. John sees in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. There are ways for us to interpret the scroll. Some will see this scroll as an ancient Roman will that is a testament of God concerning his future kingdom as an inheritance for his people. Others see the scroll as commensurate with Ezekiel's scroll in Ezekiel 9 to 10, dealing predominantly with the judgment that comes against those who dwell on the earth. Still others, George Elton Ladd among them, and myself as well, see the scroll as a history of the world, including its consummation or its rightful end, involving judgment and salvation for the people of God. The scroll is not open until the seventh seal is opened. And so the seventh seal's breaking is what will usher in the final days of human history and catapult us into eternity. Note six facts about this scroll. Number one, the scroll was covered in writing both inside and out. When we think about a scroll in ancient times, There are several reasons that this might have been written inside and out. The most uh, predominant of those is the fact that papyrus, often the thing that's used for scrolls, papyrus is expensive to make. And because of that, they took several measures in their writing uh, to maximize the material. Uh, One of those steps is that they wrote without spacing between words often. They just put everything together. Much like you and I in our 
in our reading of the English language, we would be able to make sense of a passage where the words are put together because our minds can compensate for the lack of spacing. It was that way for those who read in Greek in the first century. So they pushed the words together. It's one of the reasons that they also didn't use punctuation. They knew how to read passages and to catch the natural inflection of the text. And so they often didn't use uh, punctuation so that we, we would understand and make maximum use use of the papyrus. It's one of the reasons that they wrote front and back. No need to leave something undone. No need to waste space. Let's make the maximum use of the scroll. Sometimes they even went back and they washed away the text on papyrus and they wrote again on top of it if they thought that what was originally there was not as important. Somebody writes their grocery list. That's not so important. We can wash that away and write something else. In fact, some of the earliest fragments of the Gospels that we have, uh, one of the early fragments of the Gospel of Mark, is is uh, something that was reused. And when they, through all the modern technology, can look under the text that's visible and see what was originally written, they see that there was a piece of Mark's Gospel written on that fragment. So the scroll is covered inside and out. The scroll is given to us as a representation of redemption's history and therefore the plans and purposes of God for the earth. That leads us to the second fact about this scroll. The scroll is in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It has already been revealed that the one seated on the throne is in control of creation and creation's story. That this one should have in the hand of honor and justice, his right hand, a scroll, indicates that the content of this scroll is that of his purposes and plans for the world that he has designed and that he oversees. Number three, The scroll is sealed with seven seals. As we have learned with the sevenfold spirit, seven is a number of completion. So this seal and its contents have been, or this scroll and its contents have been completely sealed off from everyone except their author. For the contents to be disclosed, the seals must be broken in their entirety. Only then can the author's true intents be known. The seals that are on the scroll, they, uh, they carry authority. They're the proof that this hasn't been tampered with, that the author's purpose has been preserved in the writing. And only the one who is worthy can open the scroll. Number four, the scroll requires one who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and to look into it. Those angelic beings that comprise the heavenly realms knew that particular standing would be needed to accomplish this task. Breaking the seals was a matter of strength, not physical strength, but spiritual strength. The person who would open the scroll must be worthy in the eyes of the one who sealed the scroll. To be worthy is to match the weight or the value of the standard. And the standard here is the Lord God Almighty who reigns upon the throne. So the one who can open it must be weighted equal to the Father. The angels search the world over. The heavens, the earth, and under the earth looking for one who was worthy. And they found no one. At first, 
The fact that they find no one at first is not to demonstrate the absence of the lion who is the lamb, who is the root, but instead to cause you and I as the reader and John as the receiver to slow down in our gaze upon heaven's glory and upon the presence of God and the Lamb. It's given to us as a literary tool to set the pace so that we don't simply jump to the conclusion that Jesus is the one who is worthy, but we let it rest upon us that no one else is worthy to open the scroll. Number five, the scroll, which must contain the story of creation and creation's redemption, is of such magnitude that to not know its contents is a cause for deep distress on the part of John. He wept loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The scene presents as though the failure to open the scroll would be the failure of these events to take place, to come to pass. And if they do not come to pass, creation will be stuck in a perpetual state of need, never delivered or redeemed, saints never vindicated, foes never vanquished. We'll see as we hear the response, the song of the elders and the living creatures, we'll see that the people of God have been longing for redemption. We'll read in chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8, that the song of the living creatures and the elders was offered up in, in a company of the golden bowl full of incense, and he says that the incense were the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the people of God have been going up to the Father. And those are not simply prayers of adoration, but they are also prayers of intercession. The people of God longing for deliverance, longing for liberty, longing for freedom, longing for restoration, longing for redemption. And if God's people have been seeking redemption because they live in the midst of a broken and fallen world, then the only hope of that redemption being accomplished is the plan of God being brought to its rightful conclusion. If that conclusion is to happen, it will be because the scroll is opened and the seals are broken. Number six, the scroll can be opened because the search for one worthy finds one worthy one. The search for one who is worthy finds one worthy one. The worthy one is announced by one of the elders as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. The reason he is worthy in the eyes of the elder is because he has conquered, he has overcome. The triumph of the second person of the Godhead over all his enemies and ours, including death, is a proof that he is worthy, equal in value to the Father, the Lord God Almighty. The idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah goes back to the blessing that is spoken by Jacob over his son Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10. There he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The reference to the root of David goes back to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. The beginning of that passage says this, that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You see first the appearance of the Lamb. John has the elder tell him that that there's a lion and there's a root of David. But as he looks closer, it's not a lion that he sees. It's not the root of a tree either. Instead, John says in chapter 5 and verse 6 that what he saw was a lamb. He says in chapter 5 and verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. One of the elders has bid John to wipe his weeping eyes and cry no more, because one was found worthy to open the scroll. He was hailed as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. But John's vision becomes clearer. And this worthy one comes into view in his place between the throne and the four living creatures. He is not a lion, but a lamb. Here is a reminder from our introduction that we had several weeks back regarding the image of the lamb. Throughout the commentary, we see... That lamb, the idea of the lamb is used in several ways and multiple times throughout the book. We've seen this and we will continue to see it. There are at least three references that are in the view of John as a first century writer and that have to come to view for us as we read the text. First, when we think of the lamb, we think of the sacrificial lamb commonly offered in the temple for the sins of the people. And then we think of the lamb as the paschal lamb, the lamb eaten at Passover, whose blood was given for the salvation of sinners. But remember that this word is apocalyptic. It's a, it's a genre unto itself as both prophecy and epistle and also apocalyptic writing. And so because of that, we also have to remind ourselves in view here is an apocalyptic warrior lamb a feature common to this genre of writing that arose during the intertestamental period. Almost certainly this victorious, conquering lamb would have been the first thought for the churches of Asia Minor receiving the revelation. I want you to note five distinctives about this lamb. First, the lamb is standing. John says that. He said, I saw a lamb standing. John was told that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, was worthy to open the scroll and to look into its contents because he had conquered. And when he saw that one who is described as a lion and as a root, he saw a lamb standing. 
The fact that the lamb stands is a symbol of the lamb's victory, of the fact that he has conquered, that he has overcome. Number two, the lamb had faced a fierce opponent that he had to conquer or overcome, namely death. John tells us that when he looked at the lamb, the lamb was standing and yet he bore the scars of battle. It was as though he had been slain, John says. It should not be lost on us that John was told that this one who conquers and who is worthy was like a lion. But when he looks at him, what does he see but a lamb? He doesn't see the lion that attacks, but the lamb that lays itself down in sacrifice. And the lamb is there as though he has been slain. Some of you will know the classic Christian image of Christus Victor, the image of the lamb with blood pouring forth and a mighty flag of victory being carried in its hoof. A reminder to us that Christ bears the scars of our redemption even in his victory. Number three, the lamb had seven horns, John said. We see horns throughout the Revelation, sometimes used in the representation of the Lamb and other times used in representation of evil systems of power. Horns are a symbol of power, of authority. That there are seven of them symbolizes complete power, complete authority. It's a reminder that there is nothing lacking in the power of the Lamb. And so, of course... To hear that phrase, there should be something that comes to mind in your heart. Surely you should remember that there is power. Power. Anybody? Wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. When you read Revelation 5 and you see the image of seven horns upon the Lamb, it is a reminder to you of the complete power of the Lamb to not only affect the healing of the nations and the redemption of the people of God, but to accomplish the Father's purpose. The Lamb has seven eyes. That's number four. Where the horns symbolize power, the eyes symbolize perception. The lamb perceives everything perfectly. He has complete sight of the world, both the physical, temporal world, and also the spiritual, eternal world. Nothing escapes the gaze of the lamb. We're told, this is number five, we're told by John that these eyes, in addition to being in and of themselves a symbol of perception, that they are symbolic of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. As we learned in chapter 1 in verse 4, the seven spirits are a, a way of saying the one Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit of God. And so it's a reminder, a lesson here, that the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll bears the full anointing of the Spirit of God. And so think for a moment about the image. John is in the presence of the one who sits on the throne. And he has seen around the throne four living creatures and 24 elders. And as he stands further in the presence of the Lord God, 
John realizes that there are also myriads of myriads of angels, tens of thousands of angelic beings that are there in the dwelling place of God. And John says that as he gazes further upon the sight of the throne of God, between the presence of the one who sits on the throne, the Father, and the 24 elders and the living creatures, is the one who is a lamb standing as though he had been slain. And then John says that upon that lamb is the fullness of the Spirit of God. Therein is the representation of the triune Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see first the appearance of the Lamb in chapter 5 and verse 6, and then you see the authority of the Lamb in chapter 5 and verse 7. It says there in chapter 5 and verse 7 that he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The Lamb previously described as a lion and a root has authority to approach the one seated on the throne. The adoration in the succeeding verses, verses 8 through 14, will convey what has already been established, that the authority of the Lamb to open the scroll comes from the fact that he has overcome death. Herein is the truth that the Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the second person of the Godhead, the sinless one who sacrificed his own life to take away the sins of the world, then conquered death through his resurrection by the power of the Father. The authority of the Lamb is a reminder to us that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are crucial to everything. History cannot be rightly understood, nor does it come to its rightful end apart from the cruciform work of God in Christ Jesus. Verses 8 through 14 outline for us the adoration of the Lamb. You see that first in the song of the living creatures and the elders. It says in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The living creatures and 24 elders respond to the authority of the Lamb with adoration, that is, with praise. They pick up the instrument of joyful praise, that's the harp. And they offer to God the sweet-smelling aroma of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Prayers for deliverance. Prayers for freedom. Prayers for redemption. Prayers of dependence upon God. And the creatures and the elders begin to worship God, and they offer to Him a new song. I want you to note three pieces of that song. First, I want you to see the Lamb's worth in their song. They say, they sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. By the way, just make a footnote here, it has nothing to do with this, but this 
Christmas season when you wonder, where in the Christmas story did angels ever sing? Do angels really sing? Could you just come back to Revelation chapter 5 and remember that angels really do sing? That would be helpful to all of us as we walk through it. Somebody always asks. That's why I make the note. You see the Lamb's worth. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. They describe the worth of the Lamb, that he is able He is able to break the seals because he is equal in value to the one who sits on the throne. They describe the Lamb's work in their song. That's number two. They say in their song, the Lamb gave his life. And by his sacrifice, he ransomed or he purchased or he bought back people for God. That's what he did. That's his work. That's what he has accomplished. And then in their singing of praise and adoration and glory to the Lamb, the living creatures and the elders, they describe the Lamb's witness. See, the Lamb has left a sign of His work in the witness of those whose lives He has forever changed. Those whose lives have been changed by the Lamb are described as a people from every nation and language and people and tribe a people who have a new purpose, a purpose that is described as being a kingdom and priest to our God. You hear those ideas first in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where God is wanting to be the covenant God of Israel and wanting Israel to be his covenant people. And so the Lord says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You recall that those same words, those same ideas come into view in Peter's writing to the exiled believers when Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation that you should proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Moses communicated on behalf of Yahweh God to Israel about a covenantal relationship where God chose a people for his own possession has now been extended to all the people of God from every nation, tribe, people, tongue, and language. I want you to notice at the end of the song of adoration what the living creatures and elders say about those whose lives have been changed by the Lamb. They say, they shall reign on the earth. Notice that they don't say, they do reign on the earth. It's not a present reality. It's an anticipated reward. It's something that's coming, that will be accomplished. This co-regency of the saints of God who will reign with God in Christ is a future event, something to look forward to. This is a small signal to the fact that the purposes of God in your life and in mine 
are not, listen, they are not fulfilled the moment that you die. I know that we've all grown up singing lots of things about heaven that aren't necessarily so when we look at the book. Because most of us have in view of eternity the concept that we will die in the Lord and immediately embrace eternity in the presence of God for all time, and that's it. When in reality, the view that Scripture clearly presents is that the people of God who die in the Lord are spiritually present with the Lord, but their bodies await the resurrection of the dead. And because of that, the purposes of God for you and for me and for all of his people throughout all of the world and throughout all of time, those purposes are not accomplished until that day described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, when the trumpet of God sounds and the dead in Christ are raised and those who remain are caught up forever in the air to be with the Lord. May the 17th, 2017, we got a phone call that my dad had slipped the bonds of earth and passed into eternity. And my mother and my brother and I sat at his bedside for just a moment waiting for our dear friend Mike Lewis to come and pick daddy's body up. And I looked into that breathless body and knew that my daddy was no longer here. And everyone for days said well-meaning, well-intentioned things. Like I can only imagine what your daddy's doing now in heaven. Must be riding around in his pickup truck or fishing on the banks of some glassless sea. And I used all of those opportunities to say, I'm not exactly sure from the book what my daddy's doing at the moment. Because the only two things I'm certain of from Scripture are that his spirit is consciously present with the Lord and his body awaits the resurrection of the dead. Brothers and sisters, Sing, I'll fly away. Sing when we all get to heaven. But do it with the understanding that your death and passing into eternity is only the first step in the accomplishment of the plans and purposes of God for his people. There's more that awaits because one day we will all rise. You see the authority of the Lamb and the adoration of the Lamb and the song of the living creatures and the elders. And then I want you to see that that adoration is in the shout of the angels. It says in chapter 5 and verses 11 and 12, 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John not only hears the song of the creatures and elders, but now the rank and file angels numbering myriads, that is ten thousands, begin to shout. And what they shout is that the lamb who was slain is worthy. But something is different in this act of adoration. For they are not just declaring why the lamb is worthy or what he is worthy to do, but they also tell us what he is worthy to receive. And the angels offer seven gifts of which the lamb is worthy. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I think the greatest image here is the fact that there are seven gifts described. And so again, this idea that the lamb is completely worthy. And then you see the speech of creation. So the living creatures and the elders, they've sung a praise to the Lamb. And the rank and vile angels, they've shouted praise to the Lamb. And now John says that the reaches of heaven are opened, at least in terms of his hearing. Because he begins to hear cries from not just the angelic beings, but the cries of all creation itself. All of creation that groans, as Paul says in Romans, that groans for the revealing of the sons of God, now begins to shout and to declare the wonder of the worthiness of the Lamb. He says in chapter 5 and verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. There's a wonderful song that the Gettys have written. They've written so many. But there's a song that the Gettys have written that if you don't know this, you should look it up. It's, it's, a, it's just a really, it's a great treasure. It's called Creation Sings the Father's Song. And in that wonderful hymn, the Gettys explore the reality that every fiber, every aspect, every, every rank of creation turns back praise to God and the Lamb. You and I need to become enamored with the fact that the creative work of Almighty God put on display in the physical world in which we live actually radiates and reflects His glorious grace. Sometimes we lean back into the, the teachings of Gnosticism, the, the ideas of the Greek philosophers that it's the material world, the creation that is problematic and plagued. And we forget that that's not at all the teaching of the book. The scriptures teach us that the creation is made in the goodness of God. It's made for His glory and pleasure. Marred by sin. But that's why we sing joy to the world every Christmas season. As we pray that no more would sin and sorrow grow 
or thorns infest the ground, for he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. But the creation itself is radiating and reflecting and singing and shouting the glory of God. And all the creatures of the deep sea and all the birds of the air and everything in between declares the worthiness of the Lamb. Notice in that speech of creation, there's an equating of the Father and the Son. Did you notice that? To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Creation understands that these, that these beings are not distinct. They're joined in their worthiness, in their value, in, in, their, in their authority. The Lamb is worthy in the same way the one who sits on the throne is. The Son is worthy in the same way the Father is, for the Father and the Son are one. And then you see in this act of adoration a sign of unending praise. For it says in chapter 5 and verse 14 that the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So in the moments we have left, I want to offer you four thoughts on worship. For surely that's what chapter 5 has been all about. It's been all about the act of worship on the part of the angelic beings and a part on the part of creation. So I want us to think about worship for a moment. Number one, I want you to note that worship, worship is about ascribing to God the worth due to his name. Maybe the foundational text for this reminder is Psalm 29 that again and again repeats the phrasing, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord praise, ascribe to the Lord the worth due to his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 29 is a foundational text in reminding us that worship is all about ascribing to God the worth due to his name. Worship is not about how comfortable we can make the environment, though we all love air conditioning and heating and padded pews. Worship is not about how creative we can make the experience, though in both traditional and contemporary services, and styles, we love the opportunity to think and act creatively in ways that challenge the mind and capture the heart. Worship's not even about how challenging we can make the exposition. Sometimes we come to worship and we think, well, this is my pick-me-up for the week. This is, this is about getting a little shot in the arm, making myself feel a little better, knowing a little more about my faith. I want the word to be challenging to me. But at its core, worship's not about those things. Worship is about making much of who God is and what God has done and of what God is worthy. I know there are other reasons we might worship. They all pale in comparison to ascribing to God the worth due to his name. I know there are some of us who are not as historically minded as others. And we may wonder, why the need to celebrate 70 years? Why the need to set this time apart? Is this just so that we can get together and talk about old times? 
Well, we'll get together and talk about old times. You will. I don't have old times to talk about. I don't know. I mean, eight months old, but that's not quite what we're talking about in terms of 70 years. But surely at the heart of a celebration like this is the embracing of Psalm 103. To bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. To take a moment and remember what God has done for us as a church and to celebrate him for it. Number two, I want you to know that worship happens in the presence of the Almighty. The more we truly worship, the longer we spend in worship, the more we will learn about the Almighty and the more we will commune with him. I want you to be sure you understand that doesn't mean the more time we spend in church. You've heard this, I'm certain, but you could sit in a garage for days on end and never become a Buick. And you can sit in the sanctuary for years on end and never become a Christian. It doesn't have anything to do with sitting in the gathering. It has everything to do with dwelling in the presence of God. And you dwell in the presence of God through the attitude and affections of your heart, rightly attuned to Him in the power of the Spirit and in the truth of the Word. Think about John. Think about his experience that Jesus Christ bid John to come up higher and dwell in the presence of the one who sits on the throne. And in chapter 4, we read all about that experience and how John took in all of these wondrous things about the one who sat on the throne. But the longer John dwelled there, the more John experienced. He knew more of angelic beings and more of the sounds and songs of creation, but but at the core of what John knew more of is the character and person of God himself. John is there in the presence, and the longer that he's there, the more that he sees of God. It's the same for you and for me. Number three, I want you to know that worship is grounded. Worship is grounded in revealed truth. In revealed truth. And the chief of revealed truth is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses. The moment you give way on revealed truth is the moment worship begins to die and religion begins to thrive. Everything about our gathering in the name of the triune Lord, everything about our ascription of praise to him depends upon what God has shown us in his book. That's why we don't give way on it. Number four, worship will be given to God by all created things. That's surely what chapter 5 verse 13 reminds us of. And so nothing... And no one will get out of worshiping God and the Lamb. So instead of doing so by force, do so by choice. Choose in your life to dwell in the presence of God and give praise to Him. Choose that on Sunday morning. When the alarm clock didn't go off, or it did and you didn't listen, And when you've burned the toast and spilled the coffee 
and you're low on gas or the battery dies, choose on that day to set all those things aside and give praise to God and make it a habit. One of the things that that I've been convinced of since the start of the pandemic is that we would lose people as much because of habit as anything else. I think there are tons of people out there, not only at Oakdale, but all congregations, lots of people who have just drifted. They, they didn't decide to leave the Lord's church. They just drifted because they got out of the habit and they never got back into it. And worship is more than just the gathering of the body on the Lord's day, but surely it begins there. So make the choice to gather with the Lord's church, give praise to his name, and let that be the beginning place of your dwelling in his presence in your life. Father, we hear the question of the people, the people of God, who is worthy? Is there anyone worthy? And the elders are asking, is there anyone worthy who could open the scroll, who could tell us the things of the Father? There is only one, and it's the Son. God, I pray as we reflect upon the upon the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is equal in value to you, Father, that he is filled with and anointed by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that our love for Christ would only increase, that our commitment to his name would grow and blossom and that our desire to reflect his love and his light would burn strongly within us. So that, Lord, we never are forced to give him praise, but we do so joyfully. And voluntarily. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.